Let us hear the word of the Lord together. A reading from the book of Numbers, chapter 11, starting with verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him. And he took some of the power of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but did not do so again. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. Yet the spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Then Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the book of Acts, chapter 2, starting with verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up and with the eleven raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and exclaimed, Let anyone who thirsts come to me and drink. As scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from within him who believes in me. He said this in reference to the spirit that those who came to believe in him were to receive. There was, of course, no spirit yet because Jesus had not yet been glorified. The gospel of the Lord. Today is the Feast of Pentecost. On this day, we celebrate this amazing event when God's Spirit was poured out on all flesh. Pentecost is the birth of the church as the Spirit dwells in and through the community of Jesus. So on this day, we celebrate the God who is always giving and sharing, loving and pouring himself out for the world. We celebrate what N.T. Wright calls the warm breath of new creation, healing and restoring the world. And we begin with this very interesting story in Numbers 11. The story has followed the children of Israel as they've been dealing with these issues related to perceived food insecurity in the wilderness and all of these challenges related to the leadership. And is the leadership taking care of us? Remember that the children of Israel have had a structured life in Egypt, in slavery. And now they find themselves in fight-or-flight mode, wondering where their next meal is coming from or how they're going to govern themselves. Israel, of course, has been provided manna in the wilderness. But now they're complaining, and it was this kind of flaky bread stuff that came from heaven. And now they're complaining, is this all that we have to eat? In fact... This writer shows his own frustration with this group of complainers by calling them the rabble or the riffraff for their complaining instead of thanking God for how God has provided for them. Moses, we're told earlier that Moses is unable to stand their complaining any longer. He says he can't handle the burden all by himself. He wishes that God would kill him rather than making him do this on his own. Wonder if... Any parents ever feel this way when our kids can't seem to be happy with what they have and want to complain? Well, in response, the Lord tells Moses to bring 70 of Israel's elders, and he will share the power of the Spirit that is on Moses with them. And he says the elders will share the burden of the people so that Moses doesn't have to carry it alone. The Lord promises he's going to provide meat for them for an entire month. Until it comes out of their nose. That's actually what it says. It comes out of their nose. And then he says, and you're going to hate it. You're going to despise it. Well, Moses questions, God, could you actually do that? Like, could you really do that? And God responds by asking rhetorically, is the Lord's arm too short? Interesting story. (laughs) And then we hear our reading. So all of that's background. And then we hear our reading. Moses does what God commands. He brings together 70 elders. He has them stand around the tent. And it says in the the scripture, he took some of the power, meaning God, took some of the power of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. That language is so intentional, but so weird. And then it says, when the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but did not do so again. I think it's significant that this, Power of the Spirit is something shared. 
God takes some of the spirit that was on Moses. Now, it doesn't give us any indication that Moses' whatever portion or access to the spirit was diminished when this happened, but somehow some of the spirit that's on Moses is taken and placed on the others. God does this. Now, among other things, this gives us an interesting perspective on leadership among the people of God. We live in a world that's really shaped by like the Enlightenment age. So much of our thinking is shaped by modern thinking, and uh, it's so much about individualism and kind of what emerges from within myself and self-actualization. So that's bled over into the church. So when we think about the leaders of God's people, we tend to think that leaders emerge in the church because, first of all, they need to be talented, right? Second of all, they should probably be good people, people of good character, right? And then third, they should be able to draw people to themselves. But sometimes out of convenience, we drop the second one (laughs) because that doesn't always seem, you know, all that important, really. So ordination, when we talk about ordination or setting someone apart, we often think of it as something just vertical. God calls, that's evidenced by talents and gifts, maybe character, and that's it, period. But historically, The church has operated, and the people of God have operated quite differently from that. The community of faith has a role in the setting apart of leaders. The spirit is shared. Now, we have an ordination coming up. One of our bishops will lay hands on Jessica to become a deacon, on Deborah to become a priest, on Phil and Marissa, who you don't know, to become deacons, And we believe God is doing a work of apostolicity. Yeah, say that five times fast. Apostolicity. The passing on of God's spirit. That we as the community of faith then will have the opportunity to affirm them. It is God who does the action, but God chooses to share the spirit through the church. The church has a role. So this action is not only vertical, but horizontal. The spirit is shared. Now, it's weird. When it says they begin to prophesy, this word prophesy is kind of strange in the Old Testament because when we think about prophesying, we think about speaking God's words, which is totally true. And as you look in the prophets of the Old Testament, later on in the Old Testament, that's exactly how it's used. But here in the first five books of the Old Testament, the word prophesy is used kind of strangely. The idea of prophesying seems to be that somebody exhibits some sort of ecstatic behavior that sets them apart. So when it says they prophesy, they're doing something weird is what they're doing. (laughs) Or they're doing something that's causing them to be set apart. We don't know exactly what that is. You know, some people have speculated this is actually speaking in tongues that they're doing. You know, we don't know. Or it's dancing in a certain way. Or it's just shining in their face. We have no idea what's going on. But it says they begin to prophesy. And this is this idea of being set apart for a special relationship with God. In fact, Deuteronomy 34.10, Moses is identified as a prophet. So it says Moses is a prophet, and then it describes it. It says, and it's joined with the phrase, whom the Lord knew face to face. So something about being a prophet or prophesying in these first five books is about knowing God in a unique way that sets you apart, and it's it's obvious. Now, the elders, the 70 elders, may have shared in what Moses experiences. If you remember, when Moses comes down off the mount after receiving the Ten Commandments the second time, they may have had that kind of experience. 
Something different is indicated by their behavior. They are marked out by a special relationship with God. And such a dramatic work. So when this happens, it poses a question to the people of God, in whom will you trust? Are you going to trust in your own fears about scarcity or the lack of food that you have? Or are you going to trust in the spirit of God who's always been working in your midst? We also see a contrast here between two groups. We have the rabble or the riffraff, and they're motivated by their craving for food. And then we have another gathering of people, those who Moses brought together in obedience to God. These are two different gatherings. One is motivated by selfish impulses, the other by a mutual sharing and receiving. All right, then something really interesting happens. There's these two other elders... Um, these older people, right, that have been set apart, their names are Eldad and Medad, and they're included in those 70 elders, but for some reason they didn't show up at the tent. We don't know why. But they also prophesy. They also have this setting apart relationship with God encounter that happens, and we're not told why. Why did they not show up with the other 68? Why are they off on their own? Well, a young man tells Moses this is going on with them. And then Joshua, who's Moses' young aide, he gets really worried about this. Like, these two guys shouldn't be doing that. They weren't with us at the tent. In fact, he tells Moses, stop. Tell them to stop it. They shouldn't be doing this. You can't have people prophesying in the middle of Israelite camp just out in broad daylight because people might look to them for leadership instead of you for leadership, Moses. In a sense, what Joshua wants Moses to do is he wants them to give, he wants Moses to give them like a cease and desist on their prophesying. Like, this is only for us. This is not for you. You can't have the spirit among you because we trademarked it. We have this experience. So it can't be working with you. But Moses is not concerned at all. He wishes, he says, I wish everyone were a prophet. I wish God's spirit was on everybody. I wish everybody was marked out in such a way that they had that special relationship with God. Now, we could just leave it there and just go, Moses is wishing and hoping. But we know the rest of the story. Moses' desire for the Spirit to fall on everybody is reflected in the prophecy of Joel, that God's Spirit would be poured out on all people. And in the Pentecost story, this is what Peter quotes. This is what he points back to. God's people are always faced with a choice. Will they follow the Spirit of God? Or will they succumb to their lack of trust in the one who delivered them? Will they be led by their sinful appetites? I find a few things just fascinating about this reading. First, Moses knows his limits. He knows his own capacity. We hear something similar when the Apostle Paul said he will boast all the more gladly about his weaknesses so that Christ's power, he says, may rest on me. Moses understands he is dependent on the power of God, not on his own leadership or his ability to shepherd the people in the midst of their rebellion. Second, God's spirit leads us to generosity and openness. We can have open hands instead of clenched fists. We can choose whether to live in scarcity where we're afraid and grasping onto things or whether we, can, we live in generosity. Joshua is concerned about protecting the miraculous. 
He's not celebrating what's in front of him because he wants to protect it at all costs. But God's grace is always generous. That means we don't have to fear when our neighbor has more than we do. Or when God works in somebody else's life in a profound way, we don't have to look over there and go, oh, I I wish that would happen with me or downplay that. Third, God's prophetic activity is found inside and away from the tent. The 68 elders were gathered by Moses and God put his power on them. But for some reason, two were not present. They were outside the tent and they remained among the people. I think this reminds us that the Spirit of God is often found in places we don't expect, on the margins, among the people. And this makes sense because the Spirit is always surprising us at every turn. We are not in control. When we see the Spirit at work in marginal places, we should respond with openness rather than suspicion. As we hear the story of the Pentecost reading, we see that the disciples are all together There's a violent wind, there's tongues of fire, they're speaking in tongues. Now, the Feast of Pentecost was something that existed before this event, okay? It was a Jewish feast that was really, really old, and the Jews are celebrating this festival when this thing happens. The Feast of Pentecost, or Shavuot, was celebrated when Moses came down the mountain with the law. So it was a celebration of God's relationship, God's mission, God's empowerment of his people, and his closeness to his people. They're already celebrating the fact that God has chosen relationship. He's chosen covenant with his people. Even today, in some Jewish traditions, there's stories of rabbis who, at the Feast of Shavuot, they dance with the Torah, (laughs) celebrating God's law, that God has entered into relationship with his people, and that is beautiful. In Christ's death and resurrection, there's been a new exodus, a new Passover, and now The disciples are waiting, and they're waiting for a new Pentecost, a sign of relationship and of mission. This must be God's initiative. It can't be their initiative. So they're sitting, and they're waiting. Now, there's another story from really, really early in the Bible that you've probably heard before, and it's the story of the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. And this is a point where God, the people's sinfulness and pride and self-reliance has gotten to this point where an entire society has turned away from God and turned towards seeking after themselves and what they uh, desire. They're desiring to make a name for themselves. So the people build this tower to reach the heavens, and they're trying to build a society that's not dependent at all on God. Now, you can see this idea of self-reliance is all throughout the Bible. God's people are always tempted towards idolatry, which is dependence on something we can make or something we can control. At Babel, when this all happens, God steps in and rescues them by scattering them. He gives them a bunch of different languages and means that they can't understand each other and they scatter. Well, at the Pentecost story in the New Testament, we witness a reversing of Babel. That those who have been scattered are now brought together. The Spirit brings unity. In the Babel story, the architects of Babel are not acknowledging God. They're seeking to get something from God or to take. They're not compassionate towards others. They're thinking about themselves. This is the same tendency as the rabble or the riffraff, complaining for different food or for Joshua trying to restrict the Spirit. 
But in Acts 2, something radically different happens. Jesus' followers are worshiping God, waiting on God, the living God, the one who raised Christ from the dead, and tongues are given. They're distributed, and each of them hears in their own language. It's the posture of submission to God, which always leads to giving and sharing and loving one another. Babel is the language of self-aggrandizement. Pentecost is the language of self-giving. One is the language of sin. The other is the language of God. In Babel, they're building a temple and trying to make a name for themselves. But this new community at Pentecost is becoming the temple of God's presence as they're worshiping and adoring him. Each person hears in their own language. Everyone is welcome. Everyone is invited. The spirit is poured out on all flesh by God's own initiative. The disciples are together. All of these gathered this time are Jews, okay? But they're from far off places, all different languages. The disciples are speaking about Jesus empowered by the Spirit and people hear them in their own languages. Something really significant about hearing in your own language to where um, it speaks to how God goes into our spaces and into our time. Language is so much more than just translation. It carries with it so much culture and history, and idioms, and even time and place, and all these kind of things. Karl Barth said that God goes into the far country. Finally, in our gospel reading, the last and greatest day of a different feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. He says, all who are thirsty are invited to come and drink and rivers of living water will flow from within them. We've talked about this before, but living water refers to water that's moving, so streams or rivers, but it also could refer to rain, because rain is coming down and moving. Now, in Tennessee, we don't live in a dry climate. I don't know if you figured that out or not. Um, I've lived two places in my life, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Nashville, Tennessee. They're not drastically different. It, it would be wrong for me to say that, that there was this huge climate adjustment. Oklahoma in Tulsa is called green country because it's the only part of Oklahoma that actually is green. The rest of it is all really dry, but it's still a lot drier than it is here. Now, in Oklahoma, it's not uncommon that in the summer you get 105 degree temperatures just regularly and, and more just on a regular basis. And here we get that sometimes, but Tulsa is definitely drier than it is here. But in Nashville, when it gets to be like 80 degrees here, <laughs> it feels almost as bad as an Oklahoma 105 <laughs> because of the humidity that we experience, because it's just, it's, it's humid here and it's not dry at all. Well, I want you to picture like the, almost the opposite of our climate. I mean, this, this is in Israel at this time um, from May to October. There has been almost no rainfall at all. Okay. And they know that the harvest is coming soon. And so they need for there to be significant rainfall at the, at the rainy season, about mid-October. And the Feast of Tabernacles, which is also called Sukkot, was this time to pray for rain. Now, what would happen is like at once every four years or so, there wouldn't be enough rain for there to be the crop yields that there needed to be. 
So people lived in constant anxiety about the weather. Is that, are we going to get enough weather? Is God going to provide enough for us to have the crops that we need? So in Jesus' day, this was a feast where there was these big celebrations and festivals lasted for seven days. And one of the things that happened is when it was first established, the people were told to build tents outside and to live in them for seven days. When they lived in them for seven days, they remembered how God had brought them out of Egypt and cared for them in the desert. In fact, they were supposed to make these tents out of impermanent materials. And they they were supposed to make it in such a way where when they looked through the tent, they could see at least one star. So they could see outside and they could see God's creation. They remembered God brought them out of Egypt and God cared for them in the desert. So what God's people did during this feast is they remembered and they stepped into the reality of their ancestors in the desert, longing for water, dependent on a daily provision of water just to survive. The custom was to live in it or at least eat your meals in it as if it were your home. And what God's people are told to do is to remember our stuff doesn't protect us. What we can control, what we can name, what we can gather together, that's not our protection. The walls that we build to keep ourselves safe, that's not our protection. It is God who protects us. And as we read the Old Testament and we even read our own lives, we remember that's always a challenge for God's people to remember. Remember our source and be thankful for what God has done and God has given us. Now, this is cool. During this festival, the priests would pour out water and wine around the altar. And they prayed for a bunch of things. And two of the things they prayed for were rain and resurrection from the dead. For water and for new life. And all through the Bible, we see this promise of rain in connection with God's provision and restoration. Isaiah 55.1 proclaims, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And it's in that context, it's in this longing for rain and longing for new life and this anxiety about what's to come that Jesus says that if you believe in him, rivers of living water will come from you. Not only will you be filled up, that's what he says to the woman at the well in John 4, which is true, that that you'll never thirst again. You'll be filled up in such a way that you won't thirst again. But here he says, it's not only that, you will become like the headwaters of the Spirit. That something will happen in you that it's more Spirit than you can even contain, and it will move from out of you into the world. St. John Chrysostom said, the Spirit is constantly flowing from the lives of believers, not just one time. He says, we're not worthy of this gift. The only thing required to receive the Spirit is to thirst for it. One more connection. In Ezekiel 47, the prophet receives this vision of a new temple and a new Jerusalem, a new city of God. When the river will flow, it says, from under the temple. So there's a river that's going out everywhere, and it will get deeper and deeper, and it says it'll get to the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea, which is dead, will turn into fresh water and stuff will grow from it. There'll be fish that'll come out of it and stuff will grow from it and will be produced from it. New life will come. And Jesus is saying this promise for the new temple is being fulfilled not in a a building, but in human beings. It's not just for one place, it's for all places because it's for all people. So I think the question for us today is, Where are you thirsty? 
Where are you longing? I wonder if you find yourself in a dry season where it hasn't rained for a long time. Maybe you're anxious. Will aren't my needs be taken care of? Relational needs, financial, emotional, physical needs. Are you at the end of your rope? This week, I had to tell Ashley at one point, I just hit a wall. (laughs) I've been uh, working mostly overnights um, on research kind of stuff lately, and uh, been teaching a class, and um, not the confirmation class, I'm talking about another class, Um, and done lots of prep the past several weeks, and I found myself that what happened is the way our week works is I do tons and tons and tons of research at the beginning of the week. And then I'm often with the girls more towards the end of the week. And I found my time with the girls parenting that I'm just like, I can't. can't even do the next thing. I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. I just felt empty and worn down and done. Now, I hesitate telling you guys about these things because, first of all, I don't want you to feel sorry for me. The sermon is never about me. Second, I don't want you to think sacrament is overloading me. Because, in fact, in this season, sacrament is the space I'm most passionate and feel alive. So don't stop calling me, asking for prayer, things like that. Do that stuff. I want that. But I'm juggling several different things right now and trying to pack, uh, parent a very active one-year-old as, as well, which is fun. But I share this because I know you likely feel this way too in different ways, but in similar ways as well. And one of the things I've been challenged with, and I hope I challenge us, is when we get to those places of emptiness, when we hit the wall, to remember it's safe to trust that emptiness to God, to acknowledge limits and acknowledge our need. When we do, we can allow the Spirit to lead us in what to do with those longings. So like Moses, we can say to God, I'm done. I need help. I can't do it alone. When we feel our need, one of the temptations is to move to the path of self-aggrandizement. I need to get this thing met on my own. Or I need to grin and bear it. I need to be in control. Or I need to make a name for myself or prove everyone wrong or whatever it is. To take control, to grasp. This looks like seizing, like grasping. It causes us to be protective and jealous, thinking other people's blessings are a threat to me. When we do this, we may get what we want. We may get the quail. We may get it coming out of our noses but it won't satisfy what we truly long for. But when we're led by the Spirit, it looks more like Moses' open-handedness, longing for the world to know God's Spirit. And that posture, that generous and open-handed posture, leads us not only to water that quenches our thirst, but to rivers coming out of our bellies to bless our neighbors. It leads to sharing with one another, to unity, to deferring to one another. And this can't happen when we adopt the posture of the rabble or when we adopt the posture of the people of Babel, when we freak out and try to control other people or even control our own situation, when we turn our neighbors into competitors. It can't happen that way. It is only when we look to Jesus, we are surprised by the rivers which flow out of us we begin to look like the character and nature of the triune God, speaking the language of others, inhabiting their space. Pentecost, therefore, is the rejoicing in our loss of control. 
the rattling of our expectations, the incompleteness of our language. All of this is good news because it comes from the God who loves us. Amen.